You spend all your time, and you know, especially for an action picture, the money is in the action. You know, I mean, you do not have a, a movie unless you have great action. And right. I was working with a legend, Vic Armstrong. It was my very first picture. The legend. Yeah. The legend, yeah. So it was so much fun to, to do that. And, and I think that's why people, you know, a lot of guys just love doing second units and because um, like a film, you wish that the focus was just on, you know, the storytelling and the script and the work that you have to do that day. But there's so many other things that are going on. Um, that sort of take your attention away. So do, have you done a lot of second uniting since? I mean, there no. no. I mean, the only thing that I, when I finally decided to move up, um, you know, I, I got a chance. Vic called me up and said, hey, we're doing Mission Impossible 2, 2 or 3. And, um, you know, we really would love to have you. My, I think Jonathan Taylor, who was his normal guy, wasn't available. So, you know, and I... We, I <laughs> I asked my agent, um, and she said, you know, it's probably not a great idea to go back and forth between first and second unit, but, you know, nobody really needs to know and stuff. And uh, I said, well, why don't you just ask for a lot of money? <laughs> and if they accept, then I'll take it. And if, right. well, they accept it. And uh, <laughs> you're like, well, okay, fine. Oh, <laughs> fine. <laughs> but then they, uh, they canceled. Uh, I mean, they had to postpone the shoot and stuff, and I was right. on something else, so I couldn't do it. But... Um, you know, working with a really, really talented legend like Vic Armstrong, it is so much fun, you know, because they're constantly trying to outdo um, what, they've done, what they've done before. Yeah. And, you know, in this day and age, it's kind of hard to work with guys that are seasoned, a Sidney Pollock or a, you know, Sidney Lumet or somebody like that that's constantly trying to sort of move into something new and interesting, but already has a pedigree of, like, excellence. Right. Um, so that must have been way cool. And usually these action pictures... They may have a fairly new guy, you know, helming the movie, but they've got, you know, they've got the guys that know their stuff that are doing second unit. And that's why, you know, all of these movies just have such great action sequences because, you know, they get the best. And, it, like, when you're shooting the second, I mean, how much of it is, I mean, just, just the actual practical things that, uh, honestly, I have no idea. Is everything boarded out? Are you getting this piece, this piece, this piece, this piece? Absolutely. I mean, okay. if it isn't... You are doing yourself a huge disservice because you know there's a lot of resources. Oftentimes, these units are bigger than the first unit. Right. Um, more cameras, you know, more film, more everything. Um, and but anybody that's ever been on a film knows that the two big time, you know, uh, consumers are usually stunts and special effects. So if you've got an explosion or you've got you know water coming through, you can imagine that's going to take a whole heck of a lot of time. And so if you are not boarded and really, really focused on the absolute essential things, and everybody's agreed this is where we're putting our money and so forth, then you are going to get into just some major uh, expenses that you haven't considered. Um, and so, yeah, that's another thing is everybody knows exactly what they need to do. These are the eight shots that we're doing today. Um, these are the four or five angles that we can get on each shot right. or whatever. So, um, and that's, you know, anytime you have a plan and, and you know, have some uh, central focus, it makes the day a whole lot easier. Right. Now, I have to imagine, though, when you're doing the second unit, if you're directing second unit, or for a second unit director, you know, yes, you, th visually you're making sure that this is the shots that they want. But as a photographer, as a director of photography, you're trying to match a lighting style and a, an aesthetic to something that, 
somebody else is doing. Absolutely. I mean, if and, you're not, yeah. you know, you are doing that cinematographer and the, the, the director and the pr producing, you know, entity that have all spent their time and their energy and their resources to hire this particular guy or woman yeah. that, you know, if you're not matching that look, you're why are you there? Yeah, no. but how hard is that to do though? Because sometimes, is it, is, it, is it just like, is it just you guys are all like able to look at things and, and say? Well, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to be able to sit down and actually look at some dailies so that you can understand. And most of us that, you know, I mean, I know I could look at Steve Poster's work and know what he did and how he did it. Lens-wise, of course, after I looked at that work, I want to sit down with him and say, okay, so um, I see that you're using these lenses. I see that you're not shooting too straight on, but you're off a little bit. I see that you're open-minded to um, more you know, aggressive camera work or whatever. Um, can you give me latitude in terms of what you feel you'd like me to stay within and you know give me some boundaries because usually this is where you can get a chance to flex your muscles but I can't flex any muscles until I get permission from the from the director of photography on the first unit to be able to say oh no go for it or to, to be honest with you if you if there's any way that you don't have to shoot in front light or if there's any way that you can shoot in front light the whole time this is really what the look of our picture is and if, if you need to reschedule, if you need to rethink things, whatever, please, you know, this is really important to me to keep it within these boundaries. And that's, that's really our job, you know. We're not hired to, to have independent, you know, autonomy. <laughs> um, well, no, no, it's, it's fantastic what you just said because it's like, it's, it's like pure communication. Yeah. Pure communication. And sometimes you don't get that communication. Um, right. You know, a lot of times it's just like, oh, just go for it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> or in our it's, case. It's there. It's, it's what we told you to shoot. Go shoot that. In yeah. our, you know, this film that I just uh, finished, Olympus Has Fallen, we had a second unit that, that, that basically started at the same time that first unit started. So then that was going to be my next question. So who did you hire for a second unit? Um, well, it was actually you know, a, a recommendation of mine, but the, the, the company, Millennium, had a list of, of people that they really wanted. And uh, Gary Capo's name came up. And I know Gary's work, and it's just awesome. And I just said, go for it. You know, whatever it takes to get this guy, because um, he just has both the the uh, the experience of your shooting action in second unit, but also he has a beautiful sensibility yeah. about the work. Right. And he can understand, you know, that there's artistry and that there's opportunity in each, you know, sequence to be able to make things, you know, better. Um, and luckily we got him. Um, and, but, you know, I just sat down and I, I mean, normally what I do is when I prep a movie is mm -hmm. I have a tremendous amount of, of, you know, resources, whether it be, you know, pictures or stills or magazines or, you know, paintings or whatever it is that, you know, I do to sort of absorb myself and what I believe the look ought to be. And yeah. then I give, you know, copies of that to the director. I wallpaper my office with it so that everybody that walks in understands what the picture is going to look like. Um, but at the same time, you know, I have to share that with my key grip, my gaffer, and also second unit so that they can say, okay, so here's what the battle looks like. And, you know, I've, I gave them, you know, lots and lots of stills um, and frames from Black Hawk Down because that was kind of like our sort of sensibility about the greediness. And, um, oh, that's interesting. You picked Black Hawk Down. 
Yeah, and Antoine and I kind of were on the same page about that because he said, I really want this to feel, you know, like you're inside the battle. Um, and, uh, you know, Antoine has a very sort of classic style. So I've seen some, like Tears of the Sun, was very sort of epic, lots of crane work and, you know, mm -hmm. really cool stuff. But this was a complete departure from that. Um, and we both actually kind of, you know, he mentioned to be Black Hawk Down, and I, I had already, you know, created a huge file on my computer. So I turned on my computer and I said, guess who's thinking exactly the same thing? <laughs> That's awesome. Um, um, so and then I gave those pictures to Gary, and he knew right off the bat, okay, I get it. And so when the work came back, I mean, obviously, you know, all things uh, being equal, we don't, you know, we could, you know, my question to you is, when it came back, were you 100% just pleased with all the results that came back? No. <laughs> <laughs> the word, I was, I'm sitting here, I'm searching for a word. The word I'm searching for is, uh, you know, what was the word? Posterity. Yeah. I'm searching for posterity. It's not coming out. I'm thinking, I want to see posterity. We can edit that out if you want, by the way. It's, it's up to you. But, but so, so what do you do in that situation now? Um, well, you know, like a lot of filmmakers, you have certain restrictions, you know, and unfortunately second unit had, you know, they were thin on things that they shouldn't have been thin on in terms of resources. And so, I mean, I think Gary did a great job, but unfortunately had nothing, you know, we were all expecting if Antoine was going to give up this work to another unit because he wanted to do all of the, um, those action sequences himself. And of course, you know, we just didn't have the schedule you know, or the resources to do that. Um, you know, obviously we expect, expected that everything that we would have for a first unit, second unit would have. Nope. <laughs> they didn't have that. So, um, so it looked thin. Got it. You know. So, so then it just becomes a question of what the editor can do and what the... Yes. And, you know, the reality is um, we knew that this was going to be a, a heavily uh, visual effect movie. Um, and obviously we had to build in layers of other elements to be able to enrich in, um, you know, the, the work that we were given. Because um, even, even our own work, um, despite the fact that, you know, we had a lot of resources and we built this full-scale model of the White House, you know, in a field in, uh, in Shreveport, Louisiana, still Louisiana. <laughs> right. There is no Washington, D.C. around this field and stuff. So every shot, you know, had some... Um, had some layering of, of visual effects and uh, and you know when you look at the second unit now it's pretty great right um, but they they did spend quite a bit of money to you know develop uh, those that work right um, and you know if it was a bigger picture and you know bigger budgeted picture they would have had the resources to you know set those charges and put in that smoke and wait for the right light and those kinds of things but don't always get what you want. But you made, but you made the best with what uh, obviously you couldn't. You, I'm sure, as I haven't seen the movie yet, but I'm sure you got the story told. Yes, yes, and it looks great. I mean, I've yeah. seen it, and it is. I mean, despite the, the, the situations and the circumstances that we were dealt, um, right. it's it's a pretty awesome looking movie, and it really cooks as an action picture. Great. Well, it's a kind of killer concept. It is. I mean, it, you know, it's it, and it's 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 one of those things that. Um, you know, we, I think we've gotten a greater sense of our own security and, and interest in our own personal safety and security in this country. And, um, you know, we had a couple of White House uh, Secret Service, you know, ex-Secret Service people that acted as our, um, as, you know, uh, 
experts and you know people that we could use for resources and things. And they said, you know, to be honest with you, this is like one of the most important movies that we could imagine being made right now because it is so clear to many of us that have been involved in, um, you know, Homeland Security that this is so possible. Oh, really? Oh, no. So possible. I, 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 we I mean, are so ripe for this kind of so, thing. So I'm, you're, I'm watching. I know. I, okay. So we knew what the trailer, uh, what the movie was about because we have a friend at Millennium who said, right. you know, back at Cannes, I think it was last yeah. year, he said, you know, did the deal. It's basically, you know, the short pitch is Die Hard in the White House, but really it's... Bad guys take over. Bad guys take over the White, White House. House Kidnap the president. And, uh, right. and, you and know. you're saying this is actually, they're, they're actually there are guys, consultants who said this is actually possible. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I, I, I think that uh, for the most part, we need to be, you know, I mean, they said the, the government and, you know, all the security measures, they need to realize that this is a possibility. And... I, even though that I imagine you, you know, you can imagine that this is the one private residence in America that's probably more guarded than anything else. They are still susceptible to, um, you know, to terrorism, and they, these guys said this is just a huge wake-up call for you know the U.S. government and stuff, and they couldn't wait for this to get out. Um, right. I never looked at it. That's why I just thought it was a cool concept. <laughs> <laughs> this is a good story. Blow up the whole our yeah. old White House. <laughs> so you built a full-scale model of the White House. The, uh, the north end, which is, there's sort of two ends that are famous. One has the sort of rounded portico. That's the south lawn where the helicopters, you know, land and things like that. Rose Garden is off to the, um, I think, uh, the west wing and, and so forth. But uh, the north portico is the one with the traditional sort of Greek columns and, you know, where everybody enters into the White House. And so we built that whole thing, driveway, fountains, guard gates, uh, the whole works, um, and then we built an entire rooftop that was supposed to be about three-quarter scale. It ended up probably being about half scale um, because there's a huge battle sequence on top of the roof, rooftop at night. But we, instead of being, you know, 35 feet up in the air, 40 feet up in the air, we took it and built it 12 feet off the ground um, in a separate location. But when you're up 12 feet, it still feels pretty high. It feels awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so now, just as a caveat, so talking about your work, I mean, Second unit, operating stuff like that. Your you know your theories on how you, how you got to get things done, but your your movies look they look gorgeous. Thank you. All of them. Some DPs sort of like really pride themselves, or it's not even the pride. Every picture's got to look completely different. Like this one doesn't look anything like that one. Doesn't look anything like this one. You know, and 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 that's amazing to me. I don't know how they do it because I would think that you know. And then there are other phenomenal photographers. Some of which are the best in the business, where it's not that they, they they all have their unique character, but they have a consistency. There's a consistency. Would it be fair to put you in that category where there's a consistency to what Conrad Hall Jr. does? Um, I would say no. Okay. Um, and part of it is because I am cognizant. You know, the very thing that you're talking about yeah. is something that I'm very cognizant about, and so was my dad. Uh huh. And, and I, I have grown up with guys, you know, that I so admire mm -hmm. and love. And they, they found a set of tools and a look that was just so in keeping with their sensibility artistically mm -hmm. that I believe that they tried their best to apply it when, when applicable mm -hmm. to, to all of their movies or many of their movies. Like, I look at Roger Deakins. Yes. And Roger Deakins, despite the fact that he is... The Susan, the Susan Lucci of our the, of the greatest cinematographer, you know, currently going today. 
Would you agree with me that many of his films have a kind of consistent look, Deacons-esque look, hundred percent? Whether it be the quirkiness of a, a man who wasn't there, or yeah, and the, the Coen Brothers, or, or whether it be you know the new James Skyfall. Bond film, yeah. he I, is the. I actually was thinking of him right. when I mentioned you know. So the first thing that I think we ought to talk about is you know there's no there's nothing great about. Uh, you know, having a style in which you're trying to sort of reinvent the look all the time, like my dad did. Right. Um, and there's nothing bad about you know just making the most beautiful, naturalistic, yep. un you know pretentious and you know spectacular images like Roger Deakins does. Right. Right. Um, but I go into this like this one was you know my dad always taught me, you know, cinematography services the story. Right. So this was a case where. You know, as you said, Die Hard in the White House. Yeah. That was my first thinking when I read the script, and the original script that we had was huge, gigantic. I mean, we there was not nearly enough money to make the kind of script that we were reading. But nevertheless, I thought big action picture. It needs to have a certain gloss and a and a certain sort of you know epic quality to it. And then you know Antoine came on board and said, "Listen, we don't have the money. We don't have the resources. We cannot compete with Die Hard." So we've got to make this our movie, and our movie is character-driven, dark. You know, uh, uh, a movie of of people that are trying to redeem themselves, and it's more of a personal story and less about you know epic set, set pieces and gigantic action sequences. And and he says, I just want this to feel real. Do not want it to feel big and epic and you know that kind of thing. So immediately I thought to myself, okay. And you know, the door on scratched that all of the things right. that I was thinking about. Right. You know, cancel the you know the technocrane we're carrying the whole time. And so, um, you know, this is where I really went out of my way to to make it kind of gritty and ugly. And this is bad day at <laughs> at Black Rock in the White House. Right. right. Um, and you know, so my sensibilities told me one thing, but I knew that the the the, the story needed. Um, to be serviced in another way, awesome. um, and so I went back to a kind of more panic roomy kind of look, which is anything but pretty. Um, Let's talk about panic room then, because this is like so. You know, I don't know how much is again posterity is good to say, but I know that at one point there was another DP on the picture, right. and then you, and David Fincher said to you, "I want you to do this." I think there was some article in ASC about how you built this sunbox, about this box that you were going to move. I don't know. It might be my memory, but how did you go about making that movie look so gritty? Because it did. It felt like you were right down into the into the grain of the of the stock, and you were living it. It was uncomfortable, you know, because um, there are ways to achieve, like you know, somebody says, "I want to look make this look dark." Right. So what does that mean? Does it mean that the faces are dark? Does right. it mean that the room is dark, but right. the faces are lit? Right. You know, there's so many different ways to determine dark. But um, but David said, I want this to feel unlit. Okay, different than being dark. I want this to feel like, you know how when you go into a house and your eyes get adjusted to the darkness, you know that there's that sort of ambient murk uh, that you can see, but you can't really see clearly. I want the audience to feel that. So that was our, you know, that was the test for you know Darius who started the movie and 
you know, he's a, he was a close friend of mine. I had done a couple of pictures with him, and even David did. So it was unfortunate that whatever happened didn't, it wasn't working out, and we ended up reshooting quite a bit of, of what they had done. Okay. Um, but the reality is, is um, that was kind of the way that I think um, Antoine saw this as well, as, you know, I want this to feel, you know, a... And what I, what I mean by real and so forth is something that doesn't tip our hands as an audience, you know, and as a, as a spectator that somebody is trying to make this look any one particular way. I just want, I want it to feel like we're actually in the White House, in the White House. at night. So when it, came, when it came to shooting inside, you know, I mean, obviously I'm presuming a large part of the movie, and I haven't seen the movie, a large part of the movie is inside the White House. Yes. We're stuck in there. Our main character's stuck in there. He's the only good guy surrounded by a team of bad guys. And he's got to find a way to somehow sabotage them and save the president. That's it. So he's in there. You look at the set. What what do you start thinking about about how to? I mean, is it is it all driven by the actor blocking? Is it all driven by 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 what the performer is going to do, or is it? Do you start looking at the at the set and going, well, I can do some interesting things. Well, the first thing is is you know um, that there are opportunities, um, you know, to explore. And, but you also know that there are liabilities. Um, you know, like for instance, a lot of the White House are actually hallways. You know, you, you, al <laughs> you always see the rooms, the Oval <laughs> Office yes. and the Blue Room yeah. and you know, whatever. Well, but at the end of the day, it's all At the end of the day, yeah. to get from point A to point B, you know, and we constructed a lot of hallways because we really felt that um, we needed to get people out of these these sort of set pieces. There wasn't a lot of dialogue, and we needed to get them moving, get them in and out of rooms and things like that. So, um, the first thing I'd ask myself is, you know, how do I want this, you know, to look? Because mm -hmm. um, I don't know where they're going to be, and we've got fights and things like that. So I really felt like I really needed to light the White House at night. Right. And it's the same way that we approached um, Panic Room because this was a a, a, you know, a story that took place on one night from, you know, a certain amount of hour point to another. None of the lights were turned on. Right. You know, the lights from the outside, once everybody gone to sleep, the street lights hit a certain way, they never changed. I remember David had a mandate. He says, these walls have to remain exactly the same way throughout the film. Whether Forrest Whitaker, who happens to be an African American, would sit right next to the yeah. off-white wall or not? <laughs> so, so, so how would you? So, so how would you light? How would you? I mean, you're in there, and he's a dark actor, very dark. Jodie Foster's got to be about as pale as they come. And so, what do you? What do you do? I mean, is there any way you can sneak in something there to, to get just a little bit of extra? Or? Well, you know, part of it is understanding what what we as an audience will accept to see. Uh -huh. um, you know, we as a Caucasians don't have a lot of re reflectivity to our skin. Right. Um, and so when you apply a light to it, you get illumination, but you don't get reflectivity. I mean, I guess as a, as a, a means of, uh, I imagine all light is at some point just reflectiveness. But, um, you know, with Forrest and with, you know, other African Americans, when you apply a light to them, what you don't get is illumination. What you get is reflectivity. So mm -hmm. that's why you always have to put another light, usually with an African-American, like when they did, um, oh, what was the movie with, uh, with Tony this, Curtis and, and Sidney Poitier? The uh, Defiant Ones. So the Defiant Ones, you know, Tony got a light and, and Sidney got the same light plus another light. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, <laughs> because you needed the extra illumination. Right. And, and with forest, basically all I needed was reflectivity. I would put like a single, you know, uh, fluorescent kinotube above his head and it would reflect. And I, and I always asked makeup, lots of spritz, lots of, you know, sweat and stuff um, on him. And it was just enough to be able to give, give him the reflectiveness that he needed so that your eyes could see him, but not so much that I couldn't tease it off the wall and keep the walls exactly. And I literally had a spot meter <laughs> and I remember it the was, walls were 0 0.79 you know, on my spot meter at 500 ASA. And they always had to be that. Right. You know, couldn't be one and a half or one four or... Did you learn a lot from having to shoot inside the actual physical panic room itself? I mean, obviously, you know, David Fincher, a master with camera, a master with working, working and moving the camera and the lens. Um, did I mean was it was it was it interesting to see you know scene for scene for scene that took place when they were in the the locked off panic room? Yeah, you bet. I mean, oh. and and um, I've always you know enjoyed every single day that I've ever worked with David, and we were together for like eleven years. Um, it's just he's such a you know he's such a great visualist and um, and so inspiring and and also. Um, raises and maintains the highest bar that I've ever had the chance to be around in terms of, you know, both artistry and quality. So, um, you know, that's probably one thing that I've taken, you know, away from that. And I realized I had to just, you know, force myself to not be lazy, not be sloppy, and, you know, to maintain the same sort of integrity, you know, inside that panic room <laughs> that I had, you know, outside where we had a lot of extra time, you know, a lot of extra, you know, space to be able to put lights and things and, you know, keep things, you know, relatively looking consistent, so. Well, it looks gorgeous. I mean, there was a sort of this, uh, this green, a lot of the scenes had this green pallor to it that is not like a green in any other film. It's kind of like this, this deep olive, you know, that sort of resonated and, um, you know, it's, it's probably one of the, one of the few films where the, the special effect, you know, when, when there's, you know, the warping shots that go throughout and travel, they're great, but I'm just waiting for them to be done so we can go back to seeing your photography again. <laughs> you right, know, and you know. that was, you know, there was, there were, there were times certainly when I really felt like we overextended ourselves. You know, this was this was Fincher's, you know, Hitchcock popcorn movie. Right, um, and he was so excited, you know, to be able to be in one place, one set, one night, you know, uh, and he realized, you know, this was a chance for him to flex his muscles, you know, camera wise, and. Uh, I did think we may have overextended ourselves in certain areas because sometimes it does, you know, take you out. But um, um, but I I do you know uh, I so appreciate him because he has such tremendous visual panache, and yet when you really think about it and you look at his earlier work and vid rock videos and you know commercials and things like that, he so reins himself in, you know, in terms of when you look at you know, Fight Club or, or, you know, Seven, you know, Panic Rooms. Um, those, those movies are very, I think, for Fincher, um, are, are very subdued and... Even, even Seven and... and absolutely, uh -huh. absolutely. Um, you know, I mean, I, David's talents, <laughs> you know, I don't think he's ever really, you know, shown you them um, what he could do. Wow. Uh, on a film, not even close. 
And that's what I so respect about him is, you know, um, I believe he really understands how important, you know, the, the, the storytelling aspects of the movie are. And so, you know, uh, you know, maybe in Panacrum, you know, camera-wise, we got a little bit more, you know, of what he's capable of. But, um, no, I mean, you know, you really still have never seen what David is, you know, capable of doing. If he really wanted to do, you know, like, if he, if, if he had been given like Oz, <laughs> um, it would have been it would have been amazing. Wow, um, that that's actually I'm now scared. I'm a little bit scared. I'm intimidated actually because to, you know to think about because I believe you. No, and I, I mean I worked on a, a bunch of I had some co-commercials, and you just you can't believe how gifted this guy is, and and being able to create just unbelievable visual images. But I remember going you know and being hired on Seven. I thought, hmm, I wonder what this is going to be like. And you know, you've got Morgan Freeman and you've got you know Brad, of course. So it was interesting because I really thought, wow, this guy really, really respects, you know, the the storytelling uh, you know, significance of, of a longer format. And you know, he really sort of like pulled it in and I'm like, hmm, I am impressed. <laughs> we don't have to because every shot, you know, on commercials and, and the videos that, that I did with him. They were just like masterpieces, and you know, to me, Seven is is a masterpiece. Don't get me wrong, but it's completely sort of the opposite of what David has. You know, you look at Freedom, um, and you know, all these bathed, you know, in this gorgeous blue light. Uh, yeah. Um, and you've never seen that in any of David's films. No. Um, you've never seen that sort of really edgy, out there. Um, visual panache that he's capable of doing. That's fascinating that you say that. That's completely fascinating. So, uh, just another question. Not that we want to want to live on the on the David Fincher tales for too long, but um, but on that topic, the idea of doing. I've heard some actors say 60, 70 takes of certain things. You're looking through the lens at some of these 60, 70 takes. Just so that like somebody watching this now can understand. What is it about to do those? Is it, it's it's not just about like let's do more for the sake of doing more. What was it about doing doing that many takes? What was it? What's the reason? Is it just is it is it one time? Oh, the motion of the camera was off, or the motion of the the actor didn't hit the mark at the right. Is it the performance? What? Yes. All I have things? no idea. <laughs> All I know. Yeah. Is I remember the first time that I came in contact with that is yeah. I was uh, operating um, Pike Club. Yeah. And David uh, was thought so highly of me that he asked me to go off and shoot some inserts and stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know. So I went off and shot a, uh, just a shot of somebody picking up a phone. And it was a fairly medium shot with a window in the background at night. Um, and I did it 66 times. And I thought I'd had it and, you know, I, I thought well, I'm gonna do, you know, 10 takes. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit brighter kick, you know, a little lesser kick. I'm just going to give him everything because I know he likes, you know, choices and things like that. So, you know, he said, uh, great. He said, now touch the camera and do it again and uh, give me a little bit wider, a little bit tighter and stuff. So I did that. And I come back after 20 takes and he'd say, um, do you think that window's a little bit too hot? Maybe we should, you know. So it just became this sort of like parade of stuff. Um, but in Panic Room, we did have a take uh, or a shot 
of uh, an insulin bag with all these you know things being thrown out of you know the um, of the panic room and slid across the floor, and we had two cameras and we shot it 108 times. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, I'm not, it's amazing. And I, you know, we are, we sort of feel the same way. Um, at a certain times. point, you realize take five nailed it. Right. By Certainly by take 15, you've got it nailed two or three or four separate times. And um, and so we would, we would make games out of it because mm -hmm. we knew that this was going to go on and on and stuff. So we'd all have our little, you know, number. We'd throw it into a hat. And then by the end, you know. <laughs> <laughs> These are um, great stories. But you know what? That's David. Jody knew that. And the results, the results speak for you themselves. You have to do 44 takes. Yeah. You know, I have enough respect for the position of director, yeah. how hard that is. Yeah. And I also have so much respect for David as a director that if he wants to do 108 takes, you know, with two, you know, with two cameras on an insert, bring it on. Right. I don't question it, and I don't try to find reason in it. We have fun, you know, we, we, we make, you know, light of it and things like that, but um, that isn't going to change. Um, and I do believe that he has in his mind, you know, something. I've never questioned it or I've never asked him, you know, why? <laughs> well, that's fantastic. Um, that's a fantastic story and it's fantastically well told and uh, it's just great. And, and yeah, I mean, it, you know, I mean, I chuckle only because, you know, 108 takes of things sliding across the floor with two cameras is 216 versions of that shot, right. which the editor's only going to use one or two, right. or you know. But, well, but it doesn't matter. It's just it's what he needs to do to get. The other thing know, is, you know, you know if if any, if you've done a, a number of films, you know that at a certain point, when you're spending money, if you're doing an insert, you know, any studio head will know what an insert is to a movie and so forth. It's a little teeny piece of information. Let's get it done and move on. You know, you're not going to spend a lot of time. So for you to put, like, take six or seven on an insert, you are jeopardizing your credibility as a filmmaker to the people that are spending all that money because what the heck are you doing six takes on an insert for? Do it once, cover it again so that you have it in, the, you know, in case of scratch or whatever, and move on. Can you imagine, you know, showing Sony take a hundred <laughs> on it? <laughs> but in a way, that's the, to me, that's the joy of working with David because... He has got an army of people that are there to support him, whatever he wants. Yeah. And the person that, you know, really sort of, t to me, kind of was the flag holder for all of that, you know, even though I had gone through it before, was Jody. I said, you know, being this your first, you know, Fincher film, how do you feel about all of this, you know, same question that you asked me. And she said, I've done what he does, and I respect the position so much. That's what it takes. That's what I'm going to do. I'm here to help him make his film, not mine. <laughs> yeah. And you know, bravo for for her because I feel the same way. Yeah. Um, I so difficult yeah. to really know, you know, what you have and when you have it. So let's talk a little bit about um, other parts of the movie, Panic Room. Um, is there is there any particular sequence that you were just delighted with that you you know you looked at your work and you went, oh, this just looks really really great. Or are you the kind of guy that's always beating yourself up? I should have done something differently. No, I mean, you know, uh, having grown up with one of the all-time masters of contrast, my father, mm -hmm. uh, to have a non-contrasty movie was already unnerving itself. To work right on the ragged edge of, you know, being underexposed to the point of never getting it back was, you know, I mean, and, and to have done that for 
the better part of 140 days. <laughs> and one thing, if it were 40-day schedule or 50 or 60, it'd be 140 days. Um, um, but I think, um, you know, for me, the, the, I loved when the, the boys um, finally decided that they were going to turn on that safety light, that sort of, you know, work light. Because to get those shadows in there and, you know, it's one thing to be able to construct in your mind a look that you feel is truthful and organic and right. It's another thing for an audience to spend 145 minutes in that murk, in right. that sort of subdued, you know, depressed kind of non-contrasty lighting. And so I was just begging David to offer the audience some relief from that sort of, you know, I think after a while you kind of get tired, you know. Um, and so he said, all right, well, you know, he, he used to call me crybaby because anytime that I would put up a, a like an eye light for Jody or, right. you know, something, all right, you know, bring out that crybaby light of yours. He's <laughs> a great story. Bring out uh, that crybaby light of yours. We your actually called the, the eye light for Jody a little crybaby light. <laughs> Ian Kincaid was a gaffer, and so I'd say, bring in the crybaby. Um, <laughs> but yeah, when, when we brought in the, uh, that yellow sort of work light and we began to sort of, you know, elongate the shadows and there was some really interesting, both compositional um, and, you know, con contrasting uh, visuals out of that that I really loved. Um, and I, I just think the audience needed a break. Yeah. You know. Visually. Um, visually, I think that they just needed to be able to get into a new space and be able, be able to offer, you know, um, to themselves, you know, um, to say to themselves, oh my gosh, this is, this is cool, this is different. Um, because to be in one place in, um, for an entire night and never really see much change, I think, you know, for an audience is you, that story better cook <laughs> and really be told well because I think they might get a little bit visually antsy. Um, at not, you know, seeing something that evolves somehow. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, I mean, it's it's a great picture, um, and you know, for me, it's when finally, when I think at the end, Force Whitaker's finally uh, nailed or whatever, and he's outside. It's the same thing, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, and he's, I think, he puts his hand on his head and he kneels down, and there's this. At that point, I get, I get a sense of relief. I think I'm not sure how much of it is because of the story is finally the bad guy's finally caught, but right. also because. It looked different, you know. Right. It had it had like that exterior. No, and that relief was great too, with all the wind and things. And then the interesting thing about that was, um, you know, after we had all sort of seen the picture put together, well, everybody wanted Forrest to get away. Everybody <laughs> wanted Forrest to get away yeah. because he's so he sympathetic. Was kind of the yeah. sympathetic one, yeah. you know. And it's yeah. like, listen, bad things have happened and stuff, but you know, they don't. Why should we penalize him? And I remember David saying. You know, unfortunately, bad things happen to good people, <laughs> and it ain't changing. He's the studio, and everybody really wanted it. You know, to, for him to be able to. So he, they actually were asking for were they asking for a reshoot of mm -hmm. the ending? Yep. And it, it was. A, yep. I remember saying, you know, him saying, "Bad things happen to good people." That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. Huh? Uh, that op in the opening and closing, I seem to remember there is there's this trick then where the camera kind of, it's kind of a weird reverse zoom where it pushes in and it, was that was that you or was that uh, was, that was me yeah so how so was that just like a question of just mapping it out and figuring out mm -hmm. what yeah I mean we did it on a Technocrane with a, a zoom lens and uh, he just said you know I, I want to do something just to 
you know, make it feel a little like they they've got some relief, but maybe that they're they're you know not everything is you okay. know still okay or it's not you know, they still got some. So I think there was some something disoriented about that. And we first shot that um, in Woolman Rink, and we put them on a kind of a fake uh, park bench piece of concrete area. We built it up about 25 feet up in the air because he wanted the skyline of the east uh, southeast corner of the city with um, the. Uh, da, 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 Plaza Hotel and the Sherry Netherlands and that whole sort of like Fifth Avenue thing going on from behind. And we did it. And he didn't like it. We did the same kind of move, came in, and so then we ended up finding that Poets Corner, you know, walkway in Central Park. And he said, this looks kind of cool and stuff. So It has a great effect. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the opening credits of the movie with these floating... And I've only seen the movie once, by the way. I'm, I'm, everything we're talking about, I'm calling from however many years ago. Good memory. It, yeah, it's a curse. So, so but the, uh, the the credits are sort of floating, and it kind of creates it paints this picture of the city that you know, almost like the Naked City. There are eight million stories right. in Naked City. This is one of them. We zoom into this house. We live in this house, and then we leave, and it's this wonderful reverse zoom kind of effect that you put on. It was great. Yeah, I like that too. And you know, I don't think David really wanted to make a you know huge statement at the end of his film. I think he just wanted to, you know, say well, you know, they're on their way. And so we're looking into a you know newspaper and checking out new places to live. It wasn't like you know that's never David. Right, right, right. <laughs> Nobody's ever quite you know back to uh, back to normal. Back to normal, but yeah. movie you make a few years later, um, which I hadn't seen and I watched, and I thought, man, this is a really good picture, and it's beautiful. Um, two for the money. Uh, Probably one of the most uh, subdued performances from uh, Mr. Pacino that he's given in the past uh, 15 years in a very good way because he's playing sort of this older Jewish, you know, gambling maven, right. bookie maven. Um, you mentioned dark, and it's funny because my notes in here is exactly, it's almost spookily exactly what you see. You're saying, this, what, what do you mean by dark? Do you mean unlit? Do you mean, there's one scene, I think it's about halfway into the movie, Matthew McConaughey is in, in his apartment now in New York and he's working out and it's darker and he gets up and he walks through the apartment and you can see everything but you manage to make it look the same dark that my eye would think if I was in a place that was dark. How do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> I, it's a dumb question but you know. Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I remember that one and... and that was a case where um, DJ Caruso really said, you know, visually, I want this to start off big and impressive with a certain amount of gloss. And um, in the movie, um, you know, Al gets busted at the end and, and he admits that he's been gambling and he says, hey man, this is all just smoke and mirrors. And so I really thought, you know, this is a, this is a, a kind of a dark story about, you know, guys that are really sort of living on the edge and, you know, and at the end kind of collapsing and falling off the edge. So you could have really taken this another way, but I sort of thought, you know, I kind of want to portray this life of theirs as being this sort of smoke and mirrors kind of thing where everything on the surface, you know, feels rich and glossy and so forth. But then somehow along the way, you, you, 
you sense that not everything is right and you see you know people's lives crumbling and slowly but surely I tried to take the movie into being darker and and that was a case where we had built the set and there was lots of rooms and DJ really wanted the freedom to be able to move and and um, you know I remember you know this is one of those cases where I really turned to my dad um, and his kind of wisdom about things and uh, um, he said, you know, sometimes in wide shots, there's just no way in the world that I can do justice to an image, you know, and to, I guess, in, to, in terms of a character. Um, in, at a certain point, I have to have faith in the audience that we know who this guy is <laughs> or this gal is. Um, and I am going to light the, 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 the set. I'm going to light the room as wonderfully as I possibly can and just let the person move through the room. Because that, I think, is, is telling, and if, if it's, you know, in, in a way, um, if it's really about, you know, somebody that is losing it and really, you know, getting down on himself and so forth, that's as telling as being able to try to create some sort of contrasty hard light or whatever on them. So that was a case, yeah, where I just said, you know what, I, am, I have no way in the world I'm going to light, you know, I think he gets out of bed, he walks through another room, and then all the way up to a door, and then he literally leans his head up on the door and talks to um, Renee on the other side. And I thought, this is going to be a chance where I can, you know, just keep this room really dark, keep him really dark, and light, and I, I just hid things all over the place. Because part of um, working with, with Darius Kanji um, is, is learning about all these wonderful little tools that he you know, introduced me to, you know, from his work with, uh, um, with Jean-Pierre Genet. And so I would, be, I would be hiding all kinds of little knick-knacky, you know, tubes and things all over. Um, and that's the key is that, unfortunately, movies have a tendency to be about big, broad lights and, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, but, you know, my dad really, he loved the smaller units, the little, what he called little fine tip pens, where he could just make a little, you know, point of light here, a little point of light there. And then with Darius's, you know, uh, arsenal of little small units and things, um, you know, you just find place to just throw a little splash of light there and uh, it looks completely unlit, I find, as natural as you can possibly get it, but it still gives you some interesting contrast and, uh, and, some, and some points and texture because you do want to, wow, look at that cool, uh, you know, heating unit and that great and be great to pull those pipes out of the wall and make it feel different. Great. You know, let's hide something behind it, put something so that it covers the wall and we'll just sort of project some light in between there to sort of separate each one of those little, you know, and those are the kinds of things that I loved, you know, doing. Um, but that's how I light, you know, unlit. It's almost more units than, you know, bathing a room, a huge room in light, because sometimes you can take two or three big lights, throw them, put them through a window, and voila, you've got right. something lit and it's gorgeous. Right. But... And there's some, there's some, I don't know, if, I, I have no idea what you do, I don't, but I think there's some shots in Two for the Money when they're first walking through the New York sets where there is some strong sunlight right. coming in and some atmosphere and it just looks beautiful, it looks absolutely beautiful. And that's, I guess, more what you're, you know, that was... Absolutely. But then when it's dark, you're saying you have to scatter a bunch of little... You have to be clever and crafty because, you know, I mean, and you also have to decide, is the person the, the subject of this shot or is it the room that's the subject? Is it the mood of, of, a, of a guy that is really 
super down on himself and on his life right now, walking through this sort of moody room. And um, you know, that's the first decision you have to make. And then you have to find those tools that will help you to do it. I probably used, you know, oh, I would say maybe four lights to, to light that big, huge, wide shot where they go through you know, three of the rooms and ends up at the desk during the day. And I probably use a dozen lights to light the unlit part. <laughs> That's amazing. That's great. That is great to hear. That is great to hear. And, and, and are you still, are, are you actually exposing for the lower end of the, of the, of, of, of the stock or are you, ex I'm assuming it was film, um, or are you exposing evenly but it just looks dark? Well, and excuse my terminology. No, 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 and, and believe yeah, me, yeah. I am so untechnical of a, of okay. a person. But um, I've always tended to, to overexpose everything that I possibly can because I know, especially when you're shooting film, um, how much the higher end is, you know, brought back, and how much detail you can get in the shadows if you expose for the shadows. But at night. Um, you don't always have the latitude, you know, to be able to expose for those shadows or that, that darkness because there is no light on occasion. <laughs> um, and, you know, the first thing you have to do is, is understand what the film, you know, stock can and can't do. And the other thing is I believe you really do need such a kind of reflectiveness that allows your negative to work. Um, and that's why more times than not I will try to put even if it's unmotivated, some sense of a highlight or a brightness or a, you know, a rim or something, because that film behaves a whole lot differently when it has a larger, you know, grayscale. Even though it's heavily weighted towards the dark gray and black end of it, right. but as long as it's got some highlights or a kick in the, you know, in the, the wall or something like that. Um, it, it, you don't get grain, you don't get, you know, uh, a murkiness and a, um, and a lot of sort of mushy blacks. Um, and so that's, you know, one of the things that I work hard at is trying to allow the, the contrast to still be there so that you can print it down and, you know, the, the, the blacks snap up really nice and clean. Uh -huh. um, but you still get a kind of an even sort of, you know, subdued light. Cool. It's not just about underexposing everything because then you really fall, you get yourself into the toilet and you go, wow, there's nothing here and I can't. So that's all like, it's what you're saying is it's like, it's all fanciful to think I'm going to ride the edge and I'm going to go right. But at the end of the day, when you come out and see those dailies and scratching your head, you know, going, oh, well, I guess. Uh. <laughs> yeah. And there was one time where, you know, we were, on Panic Room, we were, uh, the boys were running up the stairs and we decided to shoot, you know, in slow motion. And of course, we had, we had built into this set a set of tools and a set of instruments in which gave us this right on the ragged edge <laughs> of being, you know, underexposed to the point of not really being enough. And then all of a sudden, David said, well, let's go 84 frames a second on this. And I'm like, holy well, you, you mackerel. Need to, you need to jack so up. I need to jack up everything up. And, um, and without like completely ripping everything out and putting brand new units in and stuff, um, I just tried to put more, you know, more light in the units that were there on. But I tell you, I was right there at the ragged edge and it was like, and it's still, you know, even to this day, it was it was a little grainier than I would have liked, um, and that's one of those cases where I should have just said, 
you know, give me a couple of hours. I need to literally, you know, redo this and uh, and build in that, you know, contrast so that I could print it down. Because um, right. by the time that we tried to get it back up to where it looked, it was kind of thin. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, ah, I think I can dig out another grain or something. Um, Completely different film. Uh, also, beautiful looking picture. Um, Punisher. I, my understanding from having read a little bit about it was that it was also an underfunded, not underfunded, but it had a tight budget. There was a whole sequence of the main character being in the, the army that was scrapped, you know, the old, I think it was a Desert Storm or a, mm -hmm. completely scrapped. One sequence I just want to ask you about. Again, it's you know it's the character. He's you know he's been uh, his whole family's been killed. He's out for vengeance. John Travolta is the bad guy. Um, the uh, the sequence with the Russian. John Travolta says, "Send to the Russian," right. right? Which is a great line, right. right? And then all of a sudden, this absolutely. But it was it was like comical, but still looked believable. This huge giant of a person walked in. How did you block that and shoot that so that it still was believable what was going on? Because it's, it was, it's, a, it's a mystery to me. Right. Well, for sure, you don't get that kind of feeling unless you have a really, really talented uh, stunt guy, stunt coordinator. Um, we had Gary Hyams, who was an old-time guy, really, really he's done it all. And you really, really have to build that performance into it. You know, you can't just sit there and wing it and, you know, and on the other hand, you can't, you know, uh, do, it, do it so sort of brutal that, um, that it seems, you know, out of context. I mean, this, there was a sort of a tongue-in-cheekness about that, mm -hmm. you know, thing. So the first thing is that they worked that, you know, uh, thing. They probably spent two weeks working out that fight sequence. And then they presented it to us in advance. So we got a chance, like literally the day before, to kind of see it play out, mm -hmm. see the beats, and yeah. then, you know, uh, uh, Jonathan Hensley and myself, we got a chance to really think about it and say, you know, what are the opportunities here? And Jonathan did really want to play a little bit of comedy into there. So he said, you know, when I don't need to see the guy flying through the air, what I want to do is I want to put a camera on the ground so when he lands, you see his reaction to like, oh my gosh, I have bit off way more than I can chew here. Yeah. Um, and. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we did a great job with that. Uh, um, you know, part of it was, once again, just we had to allow, you know, them to just go through the room. So I didn't do a heck of a lot of lighting there other than just, you know, kind of broad, broadly light um, through the windows and some top light. Um, but that was really a, a sequence where we, we carefully selected the shots that we did. And you could, you know, you can cover a fight to fairly well. and. Um, and find it later, but I think they really felt like they, he had, a, Jonathan had an idea about what he wanted to do. Gary really, really caught, I think, the, the feeling and the flavor of what the fight should be um, and designed it as such with kind of all kinds of fun gags and little things. Um, now was that, was that an actor in a suit or was that, I mean, was that just, was it just manipulation of the optics? Like, how did you make that person look so huge? He's huge. And 6'9". Oh, he's just Kevin Nash big. is. It was, a, I guess, an old oh, wrestler. And I think it was Kevin Nash. Yeah, I don't recognize. <laughs> Should have looked that up in the crowd. <laughs> so no, I mean yeah. he's uh, six eight, you know, and yeah. probably in his stocking feet, and probably you know two eighty, and not you know zero body fat. So right. um, that was you know. It just it, it, the way the way you photographed it. It just looks so, you know. It's it's one of the it's one of my favorite 
I mean, obviously, graphic novel, comic book, whatever you want to call them, yeah. films have become very popular of late, and The Punisher's been done several times. That one sequence to me is one of my favorites, personally, in all of the canon of right. well, comic book stuff. Well, it was an interesting film because um, we really, you know, we I when I went in there to interview them, I really pitched the artwork of... I think his name is Tim Broadstreet or Bradstreet or whatever, but he mm -hmm. was one of the later um, uh, illustrators of the graphic, you know, novel and the comic strip. And so, when I presented to them, I said, "Listen, nothing says the Punisher more than this guy's artwork. It's gritty. It's you know, it's tough." And we cannot compete with Marvel's stable because this was a Marvel. This was sort of their low budget. Um, Experiment, right? You know, can we do a, a, an action picture for thirty-two million dollars? Twenty of which went to John, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> um, so I think I honestly think we made that movie for about twelve million bucks. Um, but so we knew that we couldn't take it into you know armaments per frame and you know just big epic thing. So I said I believe that you know going back to the original comic or this new you know. Illustrator was the way to go, and you know we sh we should have shot that Pittsburgh or you know Cleveland or some really gritty earthy, you know urban, urban environment, center, yeah. and then you know Tampa, Florida rolled out the red carpet with all of these you know tax incentives, and we ended up shooting it in this like gorgeous tropical environment, and I'm like, okay. So, so that's interesting. So the apartment becomes more important than where that where Rebecca Romaine is living next door with the two, right? To, with Ben Foster and yeah. uh, who, who knew Ben Foster was going to be the unbelievable, you know? Anyway, we so, did when we worked with them. Oh, you did. You can yeah. tell. Yeah, you can. You can tell. I remember. Uh, um, I remember working with Charlie Sheen, you know, on Ferris Bueller, and he just started and stuff, and we all kind of looked at it. It's like this guy's got a career, right. you know. <laughs> who knew he was playing himself? <laughs> anyway, um, you know, uh, just curious, uh, since you, you were talking about it, what was what, what do you think is the biggest lesson you learned from 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 your father from working over the years? Um, gosh, you know, it's, there's there's so many, and he never he, the only two lessons he physically ever, you know, told me, you know, verbally was, number one, when you make a mistake, always admit it. Right off the bat. You're going to make mistakes, and we all have. Um, and the other one was, never marry an actress. <laughs> Conrad Hall, thank you for joining us. <laughs>